LRC Nation, we've got a great pod for you today and a special guest at the end we didn't know we'd be having. Running with the Buffaloes author Chris Lear joins us to talk what he's been up to, shoe technology, the world record in the 5,000. Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the 1,500, Teen Phenoms, a lot of great stuff with Chris. And we've got two great new things for you guys. The soft launch is over. The Let's Run.com Supporters Club is here officially. Sign up now, letsrun.com slash subscribe. It'll be in the show notes. Exclusive content, exclusive forum, private forum, huge discounts. You can save 20% on running shoes. And if you sign up by September 1st, you will get the free Let's Run.com GOAT Marathon t-shirt. It's pretty cool. And we can now reveal what it's going to look like. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe for that. And if your fall race and season has been canceled, you're looking for something to do, the letsrun.com fall training and racing program is here. Designed, primarily designed for high school and college kids, but it's open to anyone. If you want to excel at the 5K up to 8K, this is for you. Train your best and race your best. We've got a nine-week program for you. We know many of you high school and college coaches have long dreamed of ditching the coaches that you forced to be run with. Give them the heave-ho. Sign up with me. John Kelly and I will coach you. Can't wait. Yes. Be coached by the legendary Rojo. Let's run.com slash fall. That's in the show notes as well. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the let's run.com Track Talk Podcast, where every week we break down the week of running for you and get you ready for the week ahead. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson, and I am very excited for this week's show. The 2020 London Marathon Elite Field is all set. We have some elite hot track and field action coming from the Olympic Stadium in Tokyo, giving us hope for next year's Olympics. The Stockholm Diamond League is in the books. Are you ready for NCAXC in March? And Emma Coburn runs a huge PB that no one is talking about. As always, I'm joined by my twin brother, fellow co-founder Weldon Johnson, as well as a staff writer, Jonathan Galt. Guys, where should we begin? Well, since you guys probably don't want to talk about the Dallas Mavericks getting absolutely destroyed in last night's NBA playoffs, I think we should go to Stockholm I know it's a few days old. We actually did already. We did our quick immediate recap of the meet for our Let's Run.com Supporters Club members. You can access that if you're a member of the Supporters Club via podcast. We have the video up on the site as well. Uh, but, you know, a few days have passed now. I think we still have a few lingering thoughts on Stockholm. You guys, what strikes you? Stockholm, we got to start there, I think. We've had a few more days to think about it. But this, the big picture coming out of there still is Karsten Warholm running 4687 just missing the world record in the 400 hurdles, 0.09 off of the what 26-year-old record? 28-year-old record, Weldon. He's getting closer and closer, but you might want to take a bite of the apple and, and while you can because with world records, if you don't get them, <laughs> you always, athletes in the prime always assume there's going to be another chance and you're going to get them and shoes are getting better and who knows what, but... This one was so close. He just clipped that final hurdle. In fairness, Kevin Young clipped the final hurdle when he broke the record. But what a run. Yeah, I think that's the big question I have is just, is this guy going to have another shot at the record in 2020? And will he or Ry Benjamin or Abdurrahman Samba break it 
at some point over the next couple of years? We all kind of expect the answer will be yes, but you never totally know. I mean, remember a few years ago in the women's 5,000, it looked pretty obvious that either Obiri or Vivian Chariot or Almaz Ayana was going to break that mark of Tarnesh Dababa and no one really got it. It's still hanging around there. So I don't know. I, I think Warholm, you know, he's only 24 years old. I expect he'll get it at some point over the next couple of years, but 46, 78, there's a reason that stood for 28 years. It's really, really good. Not that I wasn't incredibly impressed by his near world record in the first place, but as I was, as I was browsing the results of the meet last night, what struck me was how slow the rest of the sprint times were. 2061 in the 200, 1120 in the women's 100, 5194 in the women's 400. And it was a little bit cool, you know, low 70s. Just brought his A game, almost got the world record. Warholm, and that's the, the most thing that sings out to me is this guy brings it 100% every time he races. 200%, you could argue, in Stockholm, given that he came back and won the 400 and 45.05 just 90 minutes later. Warholm's double in Stockholm was amazing, but there's so much going on in this event as well. Like this year, it's just been him, but we're also forgetting about Rye Benjamin and Samba. I mean, there are three young phenoms in this event. And this year, it's all about Warholm, and he keeps getting closer and closer to the record. But it just sort of also brings up some stereotypes. The, the event was first. It was the first thing on the, on the TV broadcast of Warner Hurdles. I got out of the shower, was watching on my phone. I was just like, wow. And I showed it to my wife. And I was like, this guy almost broke the world record. What do you think? And she's like, what event? And I'm like, hurdles. And she's like, drugs? And well, one, it shows how people view the sport. But also, there's no way around it. Like, we're home. He's a minority in the sport. He's defying the stereotype. And we have stereotypes for a lot of sports that I think we want to get beyond. And we briefly mentioned the Dallas Mavericks and Luka Doncic. And, you know, he was called a bitch-ass white boy by... Montrez Harrell, but it's all about these athletes sort of defying stereotypes. But with the hurdles, it's very interesting because even on Let's Run, people are talking about this and someone started a thread that got deleted and they're like, is is Renato Canova a racist? Because the way he was talking about Warholm and how Samba and, and them, essentially I think he's seeing had more talent or more speed and I, I don't know. It's, it's, there's a lot of fascinating angles in this thing because People keep a lot of people think, oh, Rye Benjamin's going to end up with a record. Samba's going to end up with a record. But I'm keeping my money on Warholm right now. I guess maybe that's the question: who gets the record, and who's got the record three years from now? I think it's Warholm to both questions right now. Rye Benjamin is one year younger than he is, but I don't know Warholm. I just Warholm beat them all last year, and I know Samba wasn't totally healthy, and he's got the closest of all of them. I kind of think it's him, but it is interesting. Well, you mentioned like, you know, we don't talk about with with you brought up his race. I was trying to think when is the last guy a white guy held last time a white guy held a world record in a running event on the track, and I was just looking it up a little bit. I think it might have been Seb Coe in the eight hundred that record stood until nineteen ninety seven. But if you look in all the other events, this Hickam El Jarouge has the mile. 1500 and then it's you know bolt van nikuk radisha bekele 
chip to guy. I don't know. It's it, it's it's kind of interesting to me. Like that, it would be unorthodox for a white guy to hold a world record. It's neither good nor bad. Wait a minute. What's going on? Ronaldo Canova's a racist for saying that two guys are faster than Warhol. The, the, the world is so screwed up. You point out that someone's faster than someone, and now you're called a racist. Isn't it like their flat, fast 400 speed effect? Anyways, I, I'm going with ultimate world record holder five years from now. Oh, that's a tough one. I do think the world of, uh, of the three of these guys, I, I'm ruling out Samba. Once you get injured as a sprinter, it, it, like who comes back to their peak, peak top form? You know, uh, um, you know, everyone thought that, I mean, Johan Blake, I, I still think the reason why Usain Bolt false started in that World Championship 100 was he was fear, fear, fearful that Johan Blake was going to beat him. But then Blake got hurt and never got back to the top. So I think it's going to be Benjamin Warholm. I'm just going with Warholm. He's more consistent. Um, he he's, seems to be more motivated, racing all the time, not taking any breaks, really loves the, the game. So that's my pick. Trayvon Brumel is a sprinter who got really injured and was really injured for what two or three years, and now looks really good. So he, he looks good now, but he's and that's in the hundred. He's not. I wouldn't say he's back yet. He hasn't done anything on the world stage. He has run fast in some low key meets, but I'm not. You know, clearly he's very fit, but I wouldn't say the comeback's complete yet. All right, guys, we're mainly known for our distance analysis, so let's move to the distance events. Big picture here, a couple of days to think about this meet, and you know. I was really pleased with the Donovan Brazier victory. I was really pleased. Well, when the race started, I thought he doesn't look right. And we hear after the words, afterwards, he's complaining about a foot injury, but I thought it was really good to see him running in the pack and trying a different tactic. And with a hundred meters to go, he's boxed in. I always say it always opens up. It did open up and he crushed everybody. And the, really the last 50 won the race by close to a second, I think. So it shows you that you don't need to panic. If you still have it in the last 50 and the 800, you're probably going to win the race. But Alan Webb never learned good tactics, it seems like. Never got comfortable running different styles. I just think this guy has it all. He's so fast at 400. He's got such great natural endurance. And now he's learning you know, hey, if some idiot wants to take it out really fast, I don't have to be a front runner. I don't have to lead. I can let them lead these championship races. I can run in the pack. I'm comfortable running in the pack. I'm not going to get tripped like Morgan Usini, and I'm, I'm going to win this race. So that was very impressive to me. Yeah, Brazier, 143.76, winning by over a second over Marco Arop, for those of you who didn't see it. He's undefeated on the year, world champion. The interesting thing, I think you guys pointed this out on the VIP subscriber show, was... It's only the first time in his life in back-to-back meets that he's run 143. Is that what we concluded? Well, that's about races. In back, in last year, he did it in the Diamond League final and the World Championships. Right, but there were prelims and stuff in between and months in between. So two times in a week. And this one was like a tactical race. He's boxed in with 100 to go. And he just crushes everyone. So there's no question who's the top 800-meter runner in the world right now. One thing I was kind of curious about, you know, there was the British sweep in the women's middle distance events with Laura Muir and Gemma Ricci, and then Gemma Ricci again just yesterday in Poland runs 158, a world leader outdoors, and remember she also had the world leader indoors at 157. I, I look at her, and she's obviously a huge talent. I mean, she set the British indoor mile record at, at Milrose as well. 
I was kind of debating which event should she run next year at the Olympics? Because obviously she's a huge talent. I think she has the potential to threaten for medals down the road. I kind of think it's a no-brainer. She has to be in the 800. The 1500 is just so loaded that her better medal chances... She did just beat Raven Rogers pretty handily in the 800. I think she should be an 800 runner next year in Tokyo. What do you guys think? I don't think this is even debatable. I, I saw that you had this in the show notes, and I instantly thought 800. I mean, I know she's training with Laura Muir, who's a good 5,000-meter runner, but the, the 800 is so weak now compared to what we've been had in historical context. And it's probably because, honestly, the last 20 years of that event have been dominated by intersex women. And now that they're no longer allowed to compete, it's not going to take, it doesn't look like it's going to take a 155 or 156 to be a world beater. You know, 157, 158, and, and you may be on top of the game. So you've gotten out the intersex athletes and you've gotten out the Russian dopers. Those two are gone. This event is wide open. I mean, 158 is, is the world leader. I know Alajay Wilson hasn't been racing, but there's only seven women in the world this year under two minutes. She's got to do the eight. That's by far easier, definitely where her medal chances, you know, are, are the best. Speaking of Laura Muir, my big thing on that race is she runs a 59-6 final lap, crushes the field, 357. And like Donovan Brazier, I, I initially praised her. I, I was like, look, it's good. You know, she, she's always been up there with 200 meters to go in these races, battling for the win. And then she seems to get run down by a bunch of people and not medal in the global championships. So I, I was like, I don't know if it's intentional that she was just going to run with the pack and then blow them away in the last lap. Or that just happened because this field did not have, you know, it wasn't as, it didn't have a Faith Kipia gun in it. It didn't have a Safan Hassan in it. It didn't have a Shelby Houlihan in it. So she beat people who aren't as good as her. And I was trying to analyze, is a 59-6 in a 357 race, how good is that sort of historically? So I did a little research to try to figure out if her close was any good. Because I remembered, you know, one time that Shelby Houlihan closed at a 57 to win USA. So I, I looked that up. Shelby, 2018, did blow Jenny Simpson's doors off of 57, I think 57-6 final lap. But that was a 405 race, so not really comparable. So when I was looking up Shelby Houlihan's stats, I realized that Shelby Houlihan won the 2018 Lasan race, also in 357. So Muir, Muir runs 357 in Stockholm this week. Houlihan runs 357 in Lasan. And that race, the final 400, was only 61-4. Now, big last 200 for Shelby. She ran 29-7. Um, and actually in that race, she destroyed Laura Muir. So, but there, so there I was like, okay, but Muir's running, you know, two seconds, almost two seconds faster than 61.4. That's pretty good. So I was feeling pretty good about things. And then, you know what? I said, well, let's see what Shelby Houlihan has run in the past. I mean, excuse me, Safan Hassan. So I just started trying to figure out when's the last time she, has she ever won a Diamond League in 357? And I've got, got bad news for the Laura Muir fans. Although John would probably say this isn't groundbreaking news. At her very best, Safana Son is a much better runner than Laura Muir. Is that what you believe, John? <laughs> I was thinking the same exact point, so I'm glad you cut, cut me I'm off. I'm already letting John – I'm already deflecting John's criticisms. Damn. But um, 2000 oh, – last year in Zurich, Safana Son destroyed everybody. 357-08. And so that's a 357 rate – last 357 race and her leader to leader last lap was 
was 5771. She wasn't even in the leader at the belt. So she was faster than that. So she, let's say she's 574 and she runs 3570. So she, yeah, she beat everybody by two seconds in this race. She probably would have beaten Laura Miller by two seconds in Stockholm as well. I mean, comparing anyone to Savannah Hassan is crazy. She pulled off the 1500 10K double at Worlds. It's like at her best, she's the best distance runner in the world. No questions asked. So. The question with her is, Alberto Salazar can no longer coach her, so is she as good with a new coach? And so far from this year, with the unrest in Ethiopia, the one race we've seen, she dropped out. So, well, I just want to, before we leave Laura Mule behind, Robert, so you were very clear, and I agree with you, Gemma Riki should do the 800 over the 1500. I'm going to throw it to you. What about Laura Muir? The 1500 is loaded. She hasn't medaled in that event. She's come close multiple times, you know, Olympics, World Championships. She was fifth in Doha last year, ran 355 in the final, but that was only good for fifth place. With the 800 being weaker, clearly Muir is a better 1500 runner, but she's run 158.4 indoors earlier this year in the 800. Would you consider having her run the 800 instead of the 1500? No. And I got, please don't. Well, I don't care. Winning a, a bronze medal in a watered down event, I don't want to see that anyways. She's not going to medal in that event. She's not an 800 runner just because she's gotten dragged along to a decent, just because she can run 59, 59 because she's got endurance does not mean she's going to medal well in, in a in 800. Absolutely not. Don't, 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 John, please. I agree with you, but I wanted to throw it out there. I, I think it's, I don't know. I mean, if you get that desperate for a medal, but the, I think the problem is there. Riki's better than her at the 800. So automatically, that's one person who's probably going to finish in front of you. And then there's Rogers, Wilson, Nakai. I mean, I think her medal chances are still better in the 15. But I don't know. Figured I'd throw it out there as an option. Guys, we don't want to talk too much about Stockholm. There's a lot more to get to. But the other distance race of note in the men's 1500, Timothy Chariot kept his win streak going over Jakob Ingerbrutsen. Just the ho-hum 330 win. I actually have a few things I want to say about this race in general because we we ran the 800, men's 800 in Monaco and 1500 in Monaco and both Monaco and Stockholm. And then I'm just wondering, like, what do we get out of running the same? This is what I'm talking about. It's one of the fundamental problems that we have in marketing and sports. Nothing really changed. Timothy Chariot goes one. Jacob Brinson goes two. The time's a little bit different. Donovan Brazier wins. I mean, the tactics were different, but uh, this is the thing. I don't want to see these same people race each other week after week after week. That's why you need kind of a break or have different events. You know, it's just kind of interesting. You guys understand what I'm saying? Yeah, they were kind of a rerun. I mean, the, the with the subtraction of Bryce Hopple from the 800. But, I, I mean, these are stars. I like to see them competing, but I agree with you, Robert. But, yeah. but, look, but look at the NFL. Like, you know, the Cowboys and the Redskins. Well, I guess we don't have the Redskins. The Cowboys and the Washington Football Club, they play each other twice a year. But you know, normally it one's in the beginning of the season, one's at the end of the season. The point stands in a non-COVID year, but in a COVID year, it actually might make sense. You already have the athletes who are in certain events, maybe are in Europe, so it makes more sense. You got a bunch of stars in Monaco. You hook them on the plane up to Stockholm, keep them racing. But the point stands. You don't want to see the same matchup every single week. There was one, two negative results I wanted to briefly say from Stockholm. Women's 1500. Did you guys see who both, the two people that ran 410? Shocking. Helen O'Beary, who ran 1422 the week before, looked terrible. She runs 4.10. And then also Ireland's, I don't know how you say her name, John. Help me out here. Ciara McGeehan, I believe. Yep. 
I mean, she ran 231.08 in Monaco in the 1,000, which is great. I thought she was primed to be the second Irish woman under four flat in Stockholm. She also ran 410. What was up with that? People have bad races. O'Beary certainly, you know, we've seen from her, she's not always on her A game. This time it got ugly. I think she was just more... I think her, her speed just isn't there right now. She's not training for the 15. All right, guys. Let's move on to the other big 1,500 action that no one seems to be talking about. Nothing gets past me, though. Nothing gets back to me. I'm moving to the other side of the world. The Seiko Golden Grand Prix was held in the Olympic Stadium. The first track and field meet held at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Stadium. It's giving me hope that there actually will be an Olympics next year. Now, they did limit the field to only Japanese athletes. But the big result in the distances was 20-year-old Nozomu Tanaka. Now, remember, this is the woman that won the world... uh, Junior 3000 Championship uh, a couple years ago, 2018. Remember, like, like what, that was some famous win or something? I'd- well, it's pretty unusual when a, when a non-African runner wins the World Juniors. I guess Mary Kane did do it. And then this woman did it. I mean, it was, John, help me out. It was a fairly significant result. I mean, I remember it, but it's my job to working for a running website. And I know she's basically the top young Japanese runner in, in the country right now. So. Are you questioning my professionalism, John? I'm just saying you pay me to know this stuff well, then. I'm not questioning you. That's right. Upper management doesn't need to know that. Anyways, this was the old. Uh, she ran the 1500 in this race with no rabbits, and she ran 405.27. Now, U.S. fans may not be as shocked by 405.27, considering there's nine Americans that have run 401 in the last year or two. But this is actually a huge big Japanese record. The Japanese record, this is the ultimate, folks, this is the ultimate validation of the book Sports Gene by our friend David Epstein. The Japanese record, 14-year-old 1500 women's record was 407.86. I don't want to hear about, oh, the Japanese have a culture that they respect the marathon. I mean, this is amazing to me. The Japanese are really good at distance running. They love track and field. And the national record in their country was 407.86. Does that not blow anyone away? Yeah, that shocks me. That's slow. 407, I would have guessed. I don't know. The record's 402 or something. I'm pretty surprised by that. Good, good, good detective work, Robert. Good detective work. And I would just point out that, you know, it is a national record for Japan, but She's also, she's only 20 years old. I mean, for any American collegian to run, if an American 20-year-old ran 405, we'd be losing our minds. That's that's really rare. Only a couple of collegians have ever run that fast in the U.S. So just sort of for comparison's sake, even for a very, very good distance nation, 405 at age 20 is pretty darn good. In Japan as a country, they've got three sub-220 marathoners in their history. And people go, oh, they're just good at the marathon. No, their genetics are better suited for the marathon. You know, I mean, like people are like, oh, the coaching. I mean, they're not situated for the coaching. Yes, maybe their coaches aren't great at the 500 because they don't, there's no reason for them to, to run it. But, you know, it's actually interesting. You think about it, like 405, like I was thinking, like, how fast is Jordan Hesse, a 220 marathoner? How fast is Dana Kester? And I think, you know, their PRs are like 407. So this woman could be your next sub-220 marathoner from Japan. Now, Robert, you mentioned, did she do this without pacemakers? Is that what you said? Correct. Uh, now, I wanted to bring up this other topic that you had highlighted. This came 
from uh, an interview run as well. Now, we had a lengthy chat with Joshua Cheptegei, 45 minutes uh, last week. Everyone can view it on our website right now. It's up there, him and his manager, Yuri Vandervelden. But Runners World also spoke to him. And one thing that they mentioned, this is on me and Robert since we were conducting the interview, that they got that we didn't, is initially Cheptegei had planned to do this attempt without pacemakers, which I just think would have been the ultimate baller move. I mean, I wrote this story on the 25th anniversary of the Zurich meet from 1995. Moses Kiptanui, first man ever eight, under eight minutes in the steeplechase. And he demanded before the race, his agent Kim McDonald was like, oh yeah, you know, we'll set this record up. We'll have pacemakers. He tells him, no, I don't want pacemakers. I want him, I know I can do this by myself and that's what I'm going to do. And he went out there and did it and ran 759. It was legendary. Now, Chet, the guy's 1235 is pretty legendary anyway, but I honestly think he could have done it without paces. I mean, with the consistency of him just knocking off 60 second lap after 60 second lap in the second half of the race, I don't think he really even needed them. I think it was good that they sort of kept him reined in and made sure he didn't go out too fast, but I think he could have done it without paces. What do you think? It would have been so baller, John, if he had done that. My God. You know, people are getting tired of the artificiality of some of these records and the super rabbits. Like, you know, I mean, I, I think that, and I saw this on Twitter, one of the highlights of our 45-minute conversation with him was, someone highlighted this, was he said, oh, I know when I got to 735, all I had to do was run five sixties in a row and I had the record. So he is amazingly good at it. So the actual quote was uh, from Runner's World was, the plan was to do a world record without being paced. <laughs> they asked him if he was tired. He said, I was not very tired. I was really prepared for this world record. <laughs> so pretty, pretty, pretty sick stuff. So we hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. If you haven't listened, we released a podcast between last week and this week for everyone with our with our Chepta guy interview. All right, guys. Some other big news from last week. The 2020 London Marathon field is set. We knew that Elliot Kipchoge was running. We knew Kenny Sabakele was running. We knew that Bridget Cosguy was running. Now we know the rest of the story. And... Honestly, it's pretty similar to the fields they announced back in January. You know, if you look at the top guys, of all the top, the, the sub-206 men entered, there is a total of 11 of them. And of those 11, 10 were initially entered back in January. Cissé Lemmer of Ethiopia is the only one who wasn't. And on the women's side, similar deal. Of the 11 sub-225 women who were entered in the field, Nine of them were part of the initially released field back in January. But the, So the good news there is London is always the best field of the year, and the fields are still really good. I mean, if you look behind Kipchoge and Bekele, you've got Mosinek Garamu, who is the fourth fastest man in history at 202.55. Mule Wasahun, who was third in London last year, 203.16. You've got Shura Katada, runner-up in 2018 in London. You know, a bunch of fast guys. Women's side, Bridget Kosgai. You've got the world champ, Ruth Chepengedich, 217.08. Rosa Derege, who won Valencia last year in 218.30. Vivian Chariot, former London champ. Eshedda Bakere, Berlin champion. So lots of talented athletes in there. Yeah, John, we don't need to read the whole Excel spreadsheet. Okay, okay, that? Robert. Tons of studs. But I think you made a great point when you when you broke down the, the London and uh, the written article for Let's Run and realizing that the field is almost identical to the field that was initially released for London. Because it's, it's clear what happened here. I mean, I think if London had started from scratch, the field might have even been better. 
because where else are people going to run? London has so much money. I mean, there's, like if you look at the list of people, and we put this in the article of who's not in London. You got the world, our number one ranked marathon in the world last year, Lawrence Toronto. Our number two ranked marathon in the world, Berhane Legese. Um, you've got number five, Lisa DeCisa, et cetera. You've got, you know, basically five of the top 10 and for the women and six of the top 10 for the men, not in London. And they're probably not going to be running fall marathons because there's nothing for them to do. Maybe they go to Valencia. Maybe they go to Abu Dhabi. So it, it might have been bigger, you know, if they started from scratch, but London, they had contracts with these athletes. We're going to pay you to run the London 2020 London marathon. When it comes back on, they probably went to these athletes and said, Hey, are you in or not? And that contract just went forward. So, Really good field, but it's not going to be like a super London. It's just going to be basically a normal, incredible London, which is way better than the other marathon anyway, so I'm pretty excited about it. Careful, careful, guys, here, because we don't want to give the impression that London somehow is dropping the ball or anything. My big takeaway from the London Marathon fields being out is this proves it. London is the biggest marathon of them all. They found a way to put on a professional elite race in person this year. That is what major sporting events do. When COVID hit, they found a way to go without fans. New York did not. Chicago did not. Berlin did not. Boston did not. They all canceled. Or excuse me, I'm supposed to get excited about uh, the New York virtual race that was announced yesterday. Couldn't give a bleep, you know, about it. Each race has to do its own and do their thing. But this just solidifies London is the best marathon in the world. Good point, Weldon. Bow down to London. That is true. I've always said I have a fear that these races are turning into glorified charity runs and maybe the races are going to think they don't need the elite race. London starts with the elite race. It's led by the elite race. This is proving it. Tokyo did an elite only race as well in February. Boston, New York, you know, and on, the weird thing, if, if you guys aren't familiar about the virtual race, London, New York announced yesterday announced a virtual marathon and they're going to have Emily Sisson run it. They're going to have, um, Stephanie Bruce, I think you know, from America. And one thing that struck me about I was reading this press release was, you know, they made a big point of saying that there's no prize money in the race, or at least David Monte's article on it said that there was no prize money. I'm sure they're paying those runners that are run. So London's not apologizing for having prize money. It might not have been a good look for New York, considering they furloughed like 30 to 40% of their employees or fired them. You know, if you add it all up together, people are going to, oh my God, they're paying the pros. But that's what's happening in other sporting leagues. They're paying the pros. So hats off to London for coming up with this field because we could e- they very easily could have taken the easy route out and just said, we're not doing it. It's interesting because I assume any pro running this virtual race in New York is getting paid something. I'm sure it's a fraction of what their normal appearance fee. I hope it better would be because with the situation, now maybe not the political situation and what New York is doing, but like the COVID situation in New York – you could easily held hold an elite only race safely, I believe, somewhere in New York. Um, but that's a whole separate issue. Getting the city approval, whatever. No, you could do it. Look at look at golf. Like golf has a whole international fields. They're, they've already held one major. They're going to have a couple more. If you really were like New York or Chicago or Boston, and you wanted to have an elite only race, they could do it. I'm sure they could figure out a way. But. And look, I'm not saying the terrible marathons for not doing it, but I think it shows you once again, London has the biggest commitment to elite, the professional racing side of the sport. They proved it with this. I'm so glad it's happening. And yes, it's going to be a pretty great race. I guess I was thinking more about like fans coming out and watching on the streets. That's what you'd say would happen. But somehow London has figured that out and they're going to do it and they can hold it safely. And the COVID situation in New York is very good right now. 
And November probably won't be cold enough. I assume it will be then as well. But just kudos for London going forward with this because they got hit very hard with COVID and they found a way to do this. And I, I don't know the finances behind the scenes and the New York Roadrunners have all these other stuff that has just gotten crushed because they have so many weekly races, which I don't think London does. So I'm not trying to be critical of New York at all, but it's just this is just testament to everything London does. A couple things about London that I'm interested in that we didn't talk about in the article. One, well, is first of all, we got a number of emails of the week. One of them is going to I'm going to read right now from Steel Town Runner. Um, he wrote in saying, "This London is the race I've wanted to see since I started following standard distance running." No mass participation to distract the broadcasters from the race. In a closed circuit route to enable fast times and good co- camera coverage. I didn't think about it. So from our, from our standpoint, it's going to be better than normal because all we're going to see is the late race. No distractions. Great camera. There's going to be cameras everywhere. It's easy to broadcast. You shouldn't miss anything. You shouldn't miss a break. But one thing I was wondering is, how is this going to work? There's going to be 19.8 loops. I haven't really seen the actual loop, but and then they're going to finish like on the mall or something. So I did 26.2 divided by 19.8. So that means each loop is 1.3 miles roughly. Yeah. So they're going to have lappage. The women are going to get lapped. So uh, like... Well, Rob, Robert, you've you've watched track races before, right? Have you watched a 10,000 meters? Have you ever seen anyone get lapped? I think people kind of, you know, it's not a huge issue within the sport, is it? Well, in this day and age, when we try to act like men and women are the same, it it, it might be a, a bad TV you know TV look if it, when the, when the leading man blows by the leading woman. So I'm just when one- men blow by women in the regular marathons. We see it on TV. The women who are really struggling, who start early, they get passed by the men's leader. Okay, but these aren't going to be the women really struggling unless they start these races. I mean, tons apart, you're going to have the elite women pass by the elite men at some point in this race. Okay. I mean, I'm sure that they'll they'll deal with it. I don't view this as a big issue to holding. I just said it was going to be interesting to see how this is handled. Okay, and okay. And how they, are they going to start the races? My take on these races, folks, is since you're just going elite only, I've always said it, start one race so that it finishes when the other one's at halfway so you don't get distracted by having two finishes near each other. One other thing on London we haven't mentioned yet is the Americans, the ones who are running and the ones who aren't. So there are three Americans signed up. Jared Ward on the men's side, then Molly Seidel and Sarah Hall on the women's side. And I think it's a great opportunity for all three of these athletes, if they're in shape, to put, to run big personal bests. Because this course is going to be really fast, should be pretty conditions first week, you know, October 4th in London. I think that's going to be pretty, should be pretty good for running fast. I, I, I'm excited to see how fast they can go because Sarah Hall, we already saw her run 222 in Berlin last year. Molly Seidel, she only has run one marathon. The Olympic trials, she ran 227, but that was a really tough course, really windy day. Then Jared Roard ran 209 in Boston last year. I think he could improve on that. It's going to be very interesting. The one guy who's not running that I thought was interesting as well is Galen Rupp. And I was curious, you know, why is it, this is going to be the marathon in the fall. I'm sure, he, he, you know, if you take it a little smaller appearance fee, he probably could have got in. And... So I reached out to his coach, Mike Smith. I was like, hey, what's the deal? And he basically said that their big focus, they're doing everything to get as prepared as possible for Tokyo next year. And so he said another, this is Mike Smith's quote, another marathon buildup wasn't going to be as beneficial as rebuilding his speed post-surgery. 
He's doing 5K, 10K work he hasn't been able to do since 2018 that he wouldn't have had time to do if the Olympics were this summer. So doesn't have any races planned for right now. Don't know about next year whether he'll do a marathon before Tokyo, but that's where we're up with Rupp and why he's not running. There you have it, folks. Every negative has the positive. Salazar gets banned, but now we have access to Galen Rupp's coach. I've been trying to tell people to stay positive. I'm going to read another email of the week later. Someone's very down about COVID. I always think of the positives. For every negative, it generally also has a positive. All right. Speaking of London, that brings me to our forgotten runner of the week. That is Sir Mo Farah. Are you just inventing a segment here, Weldon? We've never had this on the podcast before. Forgotten runner of the week. Well, yes. It's a very important segment. And well, it was announced Mr. Farah will be running in London. He's pacing like the second group, like the British group of men, like the 210 runners. And as someone who once did that at the page of myself at the Chicago Marathon, that's a very important role. Mo, I don't want to diminish it. But it's sort of interesting that I guess Mo's going to try to break the one-hour run record in Brussels here in like a couple weeks. And then he's doing this. And one thing no one even mentioned last week, so one, we can talk about why not actually run the marathon itself, but like Mo had announced the return to the track this year. Do you guys think there's any chance Mo could beat Cheptegei at 10K? The one thing Cheptegei doesn't have is a kick. It wasn't even mentioned. We just said this guy's the king. He's the favorite for both. We like, But Mo Farah's name was never even mentioned by any one of us, including me. Do you guys think there's any chance in a tactical race he could win? I think there's a chance, but you got to remember, Mo Farah is 38 years old. He's not going to be in his... He will be 38 in Tokyo. He's not going to be in his prime kicking shape. He's not going to be in 328 shape. Whereas Cheptegei might even be better next year. I just don't think... I, I, I Look, I'm not going to rule out Mo Farah. He's won 10 global titles, but I think the chances are very small. I don't think there's zero, but I think Cheptegei is the heavy, heavy favorite. But it was interesting when Chepty Guy said, you know, I'm not really good on the last 400. And what, why are we saying 10K, Wells? And why couldn't it be 5,000? I know Farrell lost the 5,000 at the last Worlds, but this is a 328-1500 guy. Why would he be better at the 10? It's interesting. Where do you think – where which event, Farrell versus Chepty Guy, which event do you think he's more vulnerable at, 5,000 or 10,000? I mean, a few years ago, I would have said 5,000, but Mo Farrell was younger than, and and – He'd been right, running. you know, he he's now he's gone to the marathon, you know, and I, I mean, normally kind of when you get older you lose your speed, but it seems to me that the, the event that you think chapter guy would be most vulnerable about would be the five thousand, I mean, in the ten thousand, but all fair has got to do in any of these races is stay near and then you know trust his last two hundred. But could be I, true. I think chapter guy knows that, and he's just going to say this lot. He'll take off with a mile to go in both these races, and this isn't like before when someone would take off like he could take off and close in like 357 or something and i, I just don't know if mo Farah is going to be hand, able to handle that if the pace is already pretty quick do you guys think this makes it more likely that farah doesn't run return to the track for the tokyo olympics maybe he tries to do the marathon yes i think the whole reason he went back to the track right was because he knew elliot kipchoge is basically unbeatable and he wanted to contend for an olympic medal and he thought what is my best chance to do that it's on the track in the 10K. And now you've got this monster, Cheptegei, waiting for him there. I still think his chances of beating Cheptegei are better than beating Kipchoge. But, I, you know, if this certainly got to put some doubt in his mind, right? 
Well, he's not beating Cheptegei, but if Cheptegei's hurt or something, I mean, excuse me, he's not beating Kipchoge, but if Kipchoge's hurt, maybe. Kipchoge's never. I disagree. Never been hurt. I think he doesn't have to win the gold medal. He can still win the bronze medal. I think he's going to go to the five or the ten. His heart's not in the marathon. I mean, I was actually reading when I was doing the London research last week. I was reading our London preview from last year. We were really hyping up Kipchoge versus Fair, and did Fair even go with the lead pack? I don't even remember. Oh, by the way, guys, slight correction to last week's podcast. We were talking about these virtual marathons. We made a John made a rare mistake. The Marine Corps Marathon. No, this we, is my weekly mistake, Robert. You call me out every week at this point. I'll admit this. This is on me. But it's not totally on you, John. I'm going to defend you here. We said the Marine Corps Marathon is going on. It is not. But if you go to their website, you would think it's going on because there's, they have the the date, the starting time, everything. But it's a virtual race. So. By the way, Emily Sisson is running the marathon in New York, but she's running it virtually. So I don't know what she's going to do, a time trial by herself and get paid. So interesting. Well, I thank you for defending me. I am fascinated, though, what Sisson's going to do. Like, could she run really fast if they choose some fast course in, like a, in Phoenix or something? Like, could she potentially do a really fast New York? Or do you think they're just going to go through the motions? Well, I don't know. At first, I was like, this is so stupid. Why do I care? But then I'm like, well, Ellie, I mean... L.A. Kipchoge is famous for running on a contrived marathon under extreme courses. As long as this race, whatever she does, I don't want to see some damn Strava fragment trying to get me to pay for Strava premium. I, 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 I want to see a certified course. As long as she has a certified course, like she can run it. Hell, there's a, there's a bike trail right, right near Let's Run's Baltimore headquarters. She can run it on that. It's perfectly flat. I mean, it's actually on an incline. She should do that. Run up to Pennsylvania. Run down. I think it's downhill if you come from the other direction. As All long right. as it's certified 26.2 miles, I'll pay attention to the time. But if Emily, it's not certified, I'm not paying any attention to it. Zero. Okay. Emily Sissom, Ray Flynn, Matt Sonnenfeld, whoever's listening to this podcast, the invite is out there. Come run the Mar- New York City Marathon in Robert's backyard in Baltimore. All right, guys. Speaking of marathons... The question is, like, when will we have a mass marathon in the United States again? The Richmond Marathon is still on, but it's now over three weekends, November 7th to the 22nd, and they have a course on a trail. So it's a certified course. I guess they figure over three weekends they can pick more people. I think that's one way to do it. The White Rock Marathon in Dallas in December is still technically on. And one question I have for you guys are, the NFL is coming back. There will be fans in attendance and very soon at sporting events in Texas, I think you will see, we've had a couple thousand at a soccer game. I think you will see 10, 15, 20,000 people inside of football stadiums. Once that happens, assuming the COVID death rate continues to drop, I think this is my projection. People don't like my COVID talk. Middle of October, COVID's going to look very different and very good in the United States. Will people say, hey, if I can go to a sporting event, why can't I go do a marathon? It's outdoors. There's a way to sort of keep people distant. The The risk to young people is just tremendously low. So if, if you can self-isolate if you don't want to go to the race, right? Like if you're older and have a condition, just don't go to the race. But do you guys think fans and seats at NFL games, does that prompt racing to return to, in the United States? Wow. I was getting ready to praise this for not doing any COVID talk. Because that leads my email of the week, Well, then I guess I should answer your question first. Do I think the NFL – I think when when there's tens of thousands of people – I'm thinking more college football in the stands. I think people might be a little bit more likely to start running, but I don't think people are stupid. If the infections are going up, people aren't going to be running. If the infections go down, people are going to be more likely to do it. Um, 
to me, COVID is very simple, but I'm not going to offer COVID tech. I was going to praise this for not going to topic. Our email of the week from Jim. Love the site. Love the podcast. Suggest you and your brother are not exactly qualified to speak on COVID. After all, you can't pronounce a basic science term like microbial, 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 which is suggested that your scientific background is limited. In other words, you simply don't know what you're talking about. All that being said, you and your brother have done a great job in founding and building up Let's Run. As my grandpa would have said, stick to your knitting. So, interesting that the grandpa said stick to your knitting, not the grandma. But I love the email. I do love to talk COVID because to me, I think some of these experts are so stupid. I mean, John, I know John doesn't want to talk politics, but... I'm just saying, look, I I just want to say for the record, I did not write that email, but... It captures my exact sentiments every time you guys bring up COVID on the podcast. Well, also, like, I think it's important to keep some perspective because, okay, I'll go to my segment. John, this is bad news from you. The Gallup poll and Franklin Templeton did a survey of Americans last year and, excuse me, like last month, and they found that, quote, People who get their information prominently from social media have the most erroneous and distorted perception of risk. And, quote, those who identify as Democrats tend to mistakenly overstate the risk of deaths from COVID-19 for younger people much more than Americans. Not to make this political at all, because I've seen some crazy shit from people on the right wing about COVID. But, John, I think you would fall into both of those categories, right? Social media and left-leading. But I just thought this was interesting, right? But I'm under no illusions that I've said this every week. I'm under no illusions that young people are dying in masses from this disease. I know it's a ton of older people, but they're still spreading it. And young people aren't completely cut off from the rest of the community. Right. But this is interesting what the study said. Like, people, fine, we're off. We're not good at the risk. It's mostly old people. We got to prevent them. But this study said Americans overestimate the risk of death from COVID-19 from people age 24 and younger. By a factor of, you guys have any guess? 300. Didn't we already talk about this last week? 50. 50. Didn't Robert bring this up last week? Oh, no. It was some different study where people were 300 times more likely to die in certain age groups, something like that. I don't know. Who cares? Well, I think eventually if if COVID's going to be here, a vaccine isn't just the end-all be-all. You're going to have to have some perceived measure of risk. And I think we're starting to see that in parts of the country, right? So... People are going to have very different things. I think politically, in a lot of events in America right now, people see sort of one-off events very differently. Yes, well, then people are very bad at estimating risk. So what? People on the left and the right. I mean, people on the right act like we're all going to be shot and killed and murdered by some rioter. The odds of that happening aren't very good. People on the left think that you're going to be shot and killed by some racist cop. The odds of that happening aren't very good. Do, do both happen? Yes. You know, if you're a young person, odds of, COVID, of, of dying of COVID aren't very good. But do they happen? Yes. And fear scares people. And that's, you got to recognize that fear. Anyways, I was trying not to have a COVID talk. Robert, that was actually very good. No, like people perceive these on the left and right things that are sort of kind of rare and they focus on them very differently. And I think we just sort of all want to try to get better perspective of what's going on. And we, I get emails all the time saying, I'm a right winger, even though I've been a registered Democrat for like 15 years. Other people say I'm a left winger because I sometimes bash Trump. So I, I don't know. I will say this. Right before I, I came into this podcast, I was on hold for the local radio station because I was driving in. And they're talking about some rioter or they're talking about some protest 
where a, a, a rioter threw a, a brick through a through a Papa John's, and the Papa John's owner came out and said, "You know what are you doing?" And this woman's like, "They don't represent us." And he's like, "Well, you're with them." And the host of the show was like, "Well, you know, if you're there, you're providing cover for this person that's throwing the rock, so you should have stopped it." And you know, you might as well be guilty. And I said, okay, I was actually going to call in the show and say, well, both sides are guilty of this. It's the same thing with the cops. Most cops aren't bad, but if you're there and you let the cop put his knee on somebody's back, are you guilty? I mean, most of the cops aren't doing that. Most of the rioters aren't doing that. I don't understand. The left and right are guilty of the same sins. It's so obvious to me. Let's don't talk politics, though. Moving on. After, after, after reading the email where we said, he praised us for the podcast and then said, please don't talk about COVID. We spent five minutes talking about COVID. We didn't Fantastic. really talk about COVID, though. We didn't really. Guys, a lot of it is related to, I think, social media and these algorithms. And that's one thing, actually, that I like about Let's Run. People from different perspectives can come together. And some people really don't like that. But the silo isn't there. You're forced to sort of interact. Sometimes it isn't pretty. But we need more of that in society. And that's why I kind of like a site where there's no algorithm, just showing you what you like or don't like, hiding that from you. There's some interaction between people because most of us, when we go out in our communities with, with our neighbors, they might vote for a different political party. They might do something else and we get along. But it's just in this hyper media environment of social media that I think it, it, it's having real percussions on society. Well said. Moving on. Let's go back to the track action. And we didn't talk about some of the U.S. action. I guess we had the, was it called the Under Armour Sunset Tour in L.A.? John, is that the proper term? Sounds about right. Yep, that's correct. We had another big friendly meet up in Oregon. The meaning of friendly was the lost one. What struck you from these U.S. meets, John? Well, Robert, I know you've got a fire take here that you, you, you're you going to drop off here about Joe Klecker and Ollie Hoare, and Ollie Hoare basically one-upping him. So I want to hear you drop the take well what struck me was this there was a 5,000 meters and Edward Cheserick raced and won convincingly right 1321 1321 the race was run by Cheserick in 1321 which if you remember last week's podcast Walden said 1321 isn't good for pros but it's good for US pros base pros it's not really good for Diamond League pros it is 46 seconds off the world record but anyways, farther, I was perusing farther down the results, and then all of a sudden I felt a little bit used by On Athletics Club. They had you do a feature on them, John, or you got exclusive access. They didn't have us. They did not pay us. Apparently they, they paid for skins all over Flowtrack. We actually did real journalism to promote their new group, but we were hearing from Ritz how Joe Klecker was doing workouts that he did when he ran 12, couldn't do when he ran 12.56, and I was expecting big things. But Klecker ran 13... 28. Now, when I was coaching, I said never complain about a PR. It is technically a PR, I think, right? But I don't know. He wasn't even the top guy on his own team. The miler, Ali Hoare, who came in with a 1407 PR, smoked Joe Klecker. Or not only smoked him, he, he might have gotten him at the line, 1327 to 1328. So I'm just feeling a little bit used by the On Athletics Club, hearing all this Klecker hype, and he runs 1328. Well, Kleck is the guy they're building the group around, though. He's the reason it's in Boulder. He was the guy they, you know, their top priority signing. And I think part of that's probably because he's American. You know, he's going to be at the U.S. Olympic trials. He's going to be at the U.S. championships and everything. If he makes an Olympic team, he'll be wearing the USA. That's kind of why they want him to be the star versus Hoare, who is a super talent. Remember, Hoare has won an NCAA title. 
in the 1500 in 2018, he upset Josh Kerr, but he was Australian. And, you know, inherently in the United States, if you're looking to improve your brand over here, you want an American being the face of your group. But Hoare is obviously a monster talent, 1328. I mean, you say it's a big PR for him, but he barely ran the fifteen, the 5,000 before this. I mean, his, his PR before this was from the 2018 Big Ten Indoor Championships, where he ran 1407 and won. So, so I was, you know, now, admittedly, I was thinking, well, maybe the conditions weren't well. It was described by Race Results Weekly as hot, humid, and smoggy. So I went to my favorite app, Dark Sky, and weather app, and I put in the conditions. I don't know where exactly in L.A. it was heard. Now, L.A., the conditions can vary a lot depending on whether you're right on the water or whatever, but I just put in Los Angeles under Dark Sky. So what was interesting to me was the weather seems to be almost exactly the same as what was in Monaco. When Chapter Guy ran the world record, I didn't hear people saying it was hot, humid, and smoggy. They they were like, "Oh, Rojo overestimated the weather." But I I, I looked up the weather. It was like, um, eighty one. It was at eight p.m. I think the race was at nine p.m. At eight p.m. it was eighty one degrees in L.A. At ten p.m. it was seventy seven. So you're probably thinking high seventies, which is the same as Monaco. And the dew point was sixty seven or sixty eight which is almost exactly what it was in Monaco. So the conditions were similar to Monaco, and the best we're getting is a 1321. Now, I do think, though, we don't know exactly. My defense of these guys, including Cheserick, is we don't know exactly if it was if there was the smoke and stuff. And I think you're right on the cusp there of what's doable and not in the weather. I think, like, it's not linear. So, like, 85-degree weather is infinitely, compared to 75, is so much worse than 75 to 65. Like, it goes... And some people, I think, can't handle it. So if I'm defending these people, maybe it was too hot. Joe Klecker is a bigger runner. He's six feet tall. And I think the taller runners have trouble and more trouble in the heat. I looked it up. Do you guys have any idea how tall Joshua Cheptegei is? 5'7". Cheptegei, 5'6". Kenise Bikile, 5'5". Elliot Kipchoge, 5'6". You know, those are all... Great runners. I talked about how Kipchoge ran like 12.51 one time in 95-degree weather. I think if you're shorter, you're better in the heat. So, Joe, I'm going to give you a one-off pass on this. Get in good weather. Try it again in the 5,000. But it doesn't listen. Doesn't, doesn't seem to me that these teams are listening to me. I wanted Ali Hoare to getting into Europe for 1,500. I wanted Josh Kerr getting to Europe for 1,500. Instead, they're running these B-team meets in the United States couple of the highlights from that meet. I know Robert loves to talk about the weather when it comes to 5,000 meters, but there were other races. Uh, Lauren Paquette wins the women's 5K, 15-10.01. Missed the Olympic standard. a PR. Missed the Olympic standard by 0.01, but it wouldn't have counted anyway. And then second there, Kellen Taylor, PR for her, 15-11. Alicia Monson, last year's NCAA indoor champ, gets a PR of 15-14 for third. So some pretty good times up front there. Danny Jones was seventh in fifteen thirty one. It's an outdoor. John, Danny Jones. Don't, don't don't say outdoor PR. That that to me struck me as a very bad result. We got an NCAA cross country runner up running fifteen thirty one as a pro. Whoa whoa whoa! NCAA cross country champion. Oh excuse me. Robert. Yes, running fifteen thirty one as a pro. Mm-hmm. That ain't cutting it. John, you're British. S- Sam A. Atkin thirteen twenty three for second in the five k. Is he U.S. based? There's no, no way he, to he runs with Tinman now. The UK to run the California. Oh, he's with Tinman now. He used to be with. Uh, I, I saw him wearing an old Nike kit. I thought he used to be with Scott Simmons. He's st- 
Because it's interesting. He, remember Sam Atkin in college when he was running for Lewis Clark, like an NAIA school, he was kind of a sensation. Like, well, he beat Cesarek in a race. Like, I think it was like 2016, I want to say, or 2015. Um, I'm looking it up right now. 6th of May, 2016. Sam Atkins, 756. Edward Cesarek, 757 at the Oregon Twilight beat. So that's why I remember the guy's name. He beat Ches when Ches was like invincible. He may not be 10, but maybe I'm wrong. This is unattached. Shout out, NAIA star, Sam Atkin. Yeah, that was definitely a, a nice run for him. And then Corey McGee won the 800. She's been winning her last three races, running a bunch of PRs, two flat point, one six. She's been having a nice season. But I don't know. I need to get in a better mood. I was telling everyone else to get in a better mood and think of the positive. All I just did was peruse these results and look for negative, really bad results. Big friendly, Nia Aikens, second fastest runner in NCAA history, right? 206. 206, 33. Okay. I mean, yeah, some runners have had bad races. It does happen from time to time. Yeah, especially if you're just starting out, especially if you've had a very long season. It's now August. She's been training, you know, she was training to win NCAA indoors in March. I'm not as concerned. What I do want to talk about, though, regarding college athletes is NCAA cross country. So I think we've said on this podcast that the championships have been canceled. That's not actually 100% accurate. The NCAA cross country championships will not be held this fall. They have not ruled out canceling them all together. And there's kind of two things that we want to talk about here. One is the Stride Report noted, broke this story about some coaches of the three conferences that are still competing this fall, the SEC, the Big 12, and the ACC, have been considering having an NCAA, like basically a tri-meet between the best teams in those three conferences at Oklahoma State on November 14th. be 15 men's teams, 16 women's teams. That's an interesting option. The other thing is, could there be an NCAA cross-country championships in March, because some of these other schools, other sports like soccer or you know the volleyball or something, they might be shifting their full championships to the spring. Could that happen? Well, rather than just speculate, John, while the show was going on, I've been texting people who would know this stuff. So, first of all, the prominent college coaches told me the odds of this ACC, Big Twelve, SEC thing are not good. But the NCAA in March would be interesting to me. And I was thinking to myself, how in the hell would that work with indoor track? But in talking to college coaches, the theory is you can't, how can you have indoor track? If COVID's still along, an indoor track with a bunch of people is not a good place because you, you have to have like so many people on the teams where they can, you, you can't just have people like they're doing outdoor track. You run your race and you leave. Well, where do you go? Like you go outside and freeze your ass off in 20 degree weather. I mean, I guess. <laughs> You could get in a bus and go home or something. or I don't know, It'd be very hard to do. So I think it would be in replace of indoor track. But the NCAA, I don't know. I, I don't think we're going to have – it'd be interesting if, if they got rid of indoor. Like, But do you really think – COVID's going to be a situation where they think, okay, we can do outdoor events only but not indoor? Yeah. I don't think, I, that. I don't think that's going to happen. They're going to cancel all sports or none of them. Correct. So, But it was you know, interesting worth talking. But I, there was an interesting article on the Stillwater – and the Stillwater – uh, local paper, which is the Oklahoma State paper. And Dave Smith is still going forward. He's going to have this race on the home course, the date of NCAs, for his own team. So they're still training. And, you know, the article was was, was fascinating. Uh, it said that Stillwater News Express, it said that the ESPN for the first 
I mean, the NCAA cross country this year in Oklahoma State, for the first time ever, was going to be broadcast live on ESPN. So what a shame. And I've confirmed, I've reached out to Dave Smith. He says that's true, but now all bets are off. I said, Dave, did you hear my idea? You guys should host World XC since Australia wants out. We need that breaking news sound. Anyone have it ready? I have great breaking news, folks. Dave Smith has texted me back. I will contact USATF and see what they see. Folks, get ready. World XC is coming to America. It's coming to Oklahoma in March. Actually, but then he, then he texts, I think you need to commit like a million dollars. Okay, well, maybe we can go fund me, folks. Start donating now. Robert, a couple things on what you mentioned. I have trouble buying that this meet would have been shown on ESPN. I don't disagree. Maybe it was on the ESPN family of networks, like ESPN2 or ESPNU or ESPN Watch ESPN. They were really going to broadcast this meet live on Saturday morning during college football season when they always show college game day at that spot in the morning. I just don't believe that. I don't understand, John. John, there's a bunch of ESPNs. But there is a difference. You can't you can't promote saying this meet is going to be live on ESPN. There is a big difference between saying live on ESPN and live on ESPN EU. This is why so many people are having a tough time in the year 2020 because like simple facts now are just ignored. John told me right when we started this podcast, he didn't believe this. I reached out to Dave Smith to confirm what something that's published in the Oklahoma paper is actually true. Dave Smith confirms it's true. And John says it's still not no, true. No, 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 no. Did, did you clarify specifically I didn't say, ESPN? Well, I, not ESPNU, not some streaming service, the ESPN. It was going to bump off college game day. So, John, you'd be upset if it was on ESPN2? I just think I want I value accuracy. I don't think it's fair to be promoting, hey, we're finally going to get this thing on ESPN, and then it's actually just on the website, like the NCAA track and field championships are. What if it was on ESPN2? Then say ESPN2. Don't say ESPN. There is a difference. Fine. If it's on ESPN+, Plus, that's something different. But it's on a TV network, I'll take it. This is this is sort of fascinating because like all of this COVID shit that people are talking about. Okay, let's go back to March and April. Everyone assumed, oh, we'd have these races in the October. We'd have the Boston Marathon. We'd be having the New York City Marathon. Well, granted, they're international events. We had a lot of spikes in the U.S. and other parts of the country. But COVID's very low in New York City right now. There's no marathon. They maybe could have tried to done some regional marathon. Not happening. Why do we assume in March, all of a sudden, which is last time I checked, peak flu season, that we're going to all be just like super cool with these events? So I think it'll be interesting. I think opportunity for stuff is much bigger this fall than in the dead of the winter. An outdoor event, though, might make sense if we can sort of get over this thing. But if people are fearful now, wait for like everyone's getting sick with the flu and wondering if it's COVID or the flu, like... Unless we change our mindsets about stuff and get a little better testing, there could be like total paranoia this winter. I think actually this fall is going to be a very calm time. I think the winter could be much more problematic because you get the flu. Correct. John, John wants to know why we always talk COVID because it's almost impossible not to, John. Because stuff. Like no, this no, 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 no. Earlier in the podcast, it was very easy not to, no. and we just leaned into it for an unnecessary drift. No. Well, then wants to know. Well, then wants to know why everyone's assuming it's going to be better. They're not. Here's another yeah. text I got from a prominent NCA coach, 
just a few seconds ago. There's no question the virus will get worse during the fall and winter because people are inside and exposed to each other much more often. I don't see any NCAA sports until the fall of 2021. Well, I think they're wrong about that. They're definitely getting, well, NCAA sports, they're definitely playing football. So, <laughs> well, I, probably. But no, here's one thing. Let's just say we are in a position in March to have an NCAA championships in these sports. I think it would be intriguing. What if the distance runners basically just said, hey, Indoor track, that, let's be honest, as track fans, that's our least favorite of the three seasons, right? Cross-country, indoor, and outdoor. The, it goes cross-country, outdoor, indoor. That's my rankings. I would just say, hey, in order to sort of limit the participation, all the distance runners will run cross-country, and all the track athletes, you know, the sprinters, jumpers, throwers, they run track. You just have an indoor track and field championships without distance runners, and all the distance runners get to run the cross NCAA cross-country championships. Can't do it. Totally changes the sport. Yeah, and the coaching staffs are going to be split up. I mean, it'll be a mess, but I think it, I don't know. I think it'd be kind of intriguing. I don't think it's going to be happen anyway. But all right, folks, we need to wrap this show up. We're gonna Walden's probably gonna have a lot of editing. He needs to edit out a lot of this politics and COVID talk so we don't get negative reviews. I can't believe Walden's brought up a few topics. Normally, I'm the one. Brent. Yes, rate and review us eight four four. Let's run is the phone number. That's eight four four. 538-7786. And also, we were unveiling a new email address for the podcast. Email us at pod, P-O-D, at letsrun.com, pod at letsrun.com. I want to share with you guys my message board post, excuse me, thread of the week. And I must admit, I saw this, this thread was up and it was popular. For one, I didn't even know what this meant at first. The obesification of the U.S. Is obesification a real word? In case you don't know what that means or what it's being referred to, it's like the getting fatter of the United States. I think people know what obese means, Robert. Okay. I, I like to think I have listeners or an educated bunch. They know the word obese. My stat of the week, folks. Are you guys ready for this? In 2018, the least obese state in the United States of America, Colorado, was more obese than the most obese state in 1990, Mississippi. So the worst state, the best state in America now is fatter than the best state, than the worst state just, what, 30 years ago. Unbelievable. Wow, that's kind of crazy. But Robert, are you an obesity expert? I don't think you're allowed to talk about that unless you're an expert. Just got me thinking about the COVID stuff. People, you guys aren't experts. You can't talk about that. It's really, if we were agreeing... With what they thought, they wouldn't care if we were an expert, right? Like Governor Cuomo is not an expert on COVID, but if you like what he's saying, you're like, yeah, go for it. Say what you want. And then I think a lot of stuff in society these days is whether you agree with it or not. Very interesting fact, Robert. Very interesting. Oh, I agree. I, I do think that the message boards are controversial. There's some bad – don't get me wrong. There's some bad stuff on there. But I think people are, are used to getting affirmation, not information, and they don't like to be challenged. Yes. Tell us why we're idiots. We want to hear your feedback. Fake Galen Rupp, if you're out there, give us a call. And once again, we got the Supporters Club. I think it might be eventually called the Running Club. LRC Nation, the members only area is now <laughs> you out. You just gave it five different names. That I, don't, I don't want to call it the Runners Club. I like Supporters Club and you're a Let's Run VIP. But if you sign up now before the end of the month, by September 1, the soft launch is over. We're having a real launch. Everyone gets a free t-shirt if you sign up by September 1. So sign up. You can now see the goat pictures. They're there. 
And guys, we had a prominent member of the running committee sign up. You guys want to guess who he is? Uh, Joshua Cheptegei. No, I'll, I'll probably give him a free I think we did give a free membership to his coach, though. His coach wanted a membership. Robert, this person you're familiar with. Okay, never mind. I'll, I'll tell you. It is Chris Lear, famed Running with the Buffaloes author and Robert's college roommate in college. He wrote the cult classic running book, Running with the Buffaloes, and sub for the book on Alan Webb. He's a member. Actually, we should get Chris on the podcast. I'm going to call him up. I'm going to come up right now. We need a guest. We, we got time to talk to Chris, don't we? He's always driving in his car trying to sell stuff. Hey, Joe, what's up? Hey, man. You're, you're a uh, Let's Run.com subscriber, I see. Supporter. Chris, it's Rojo. I'm on here. You're a VIP. What's up, man? Uh, I, 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 this might be the only place I'm a VIP. Yes, I am. I and, am a. And I'm proud to be a founder member of Let'sRun.com. And before you say something inappropriate, Chris, we're gonna try to use this segment on our podcast. So, thank you for the fair warning. Hope you don't mind. No, not at all. All right, where should we begin? Well, thanks for supporting the site. It's cool, and you gave us some feedback and who to interview and that sort of stuff. And I think just engaging with people who get the site is gonna really help us make a better site. So. I'm curious, Chris, what, what made yeah. you sign up? I mean, other than the fact that I've been paying you and your wife's cell phone bill on the Let's Run credit card for a year, the last two years. But other than that, like. <laughs> that, that is part of my calculus. You, you're, you're one of the cheapest bastards I ever met. So I, I was I was pleased to see that you you put out, you were, you found it worth $10 a month. Well, I mean, it's cheap, man. It's incredible value for, for what you guys do. I mean, if I wasn't for, for Let's Run, I would not have, uh, you know, an idea of what's going on in the sport. Um, so it, you know, I want to go to a one-stop shop where I can, I can go every day, every other day, whatever, and like see what's going on in the running world. And you do that. So for me, it's a no brainer because I still, I still love the sport, but I have zero connection to it anymore. Um, and so the only connection I have is through you guys. You guys do a phenomenal job. So, I mean, it's a tremendous value as far as I'm Chris, people probably don't want to hear why you signed up, but so you don't follow the sport right now. Tell me. Like one thing you know that's going on right now in the sport, like what's happened recently. We are in a COVID shutdown, but like, what interests you right now? Well, so I, I think um, the I saw the five k record was broken, and then the word that the guy had on like cheater spikes. So interesting, and, you said the guy. Uh, so that means you're searching for Chepta guy's name, which I've done at times. I can see that. Continue on. And. Uh, yeah, no, so, I mean, I just, I thought it was amazing. So you have the, the last five laps or so on your website, the clip, and I watched it, and I was totally blown away, but I was really dismayed a day later to find out from some friends who are involved in the sport at the professional level that uh, he was wearing cheater spikes. And um, I just think it's unfortunate that I think all these performances now and I don't know how long they've been wearing cheater spikes. Maybe it's, maybe it's already been a year or two that they've been wearing them. But then you know it divorces the performances from any sorts of historical context. It just, it's still amazing, but I think part of the appeal for me, and, and I probably sound like an old fuddy-duddy baseball traditionalist, is to be able to kind of compare performances across different eras. And I think now that these shoes are here to stay, 
um, you can't do that anymore. You just have to take it for what it is and really it brings the focus on the competition and who you beat because the times are unfortunately uh, not as relevant as, as they used to be. The technology moves forward like this. I know it's a very tricky issue, but on the whole, my gut was that I, I don't like it. And uh, I think I read something on your site about Shelby Houlihan when she set the American record that she's been wearing spikes that are four or five years old. So I'm imag- I imagine that those are not spikes that have any kind of mechanical enhancement. And that totally makes me much a much bigger fan of hers. I'm like, that's awesome. So I almost feel like there should be a disclaimer before a race starts about now, like who's wearing the cheater spikes and who's not. Well, so you kind of know what you're seeing. Yeah, I guess now we are the old fuddy-duddies, as you said. Like when we got first started with the sport, those old guys who are probably, you know, our age would be like, Jim Ryan back in the day, he weren't, ran on the dirt track, you know, with the heavy spikes. And we were like, who cares? <laughs> That's the thing, because you, you, you could totally make that, you know, look, look at what Peter Snow did on a grass track or Jim Ryan on a dirt track. I mean, to, to, to think of what, what's a 351 on a dirt track worth on one of these state-of-the-art synthetic surfaces? You know, got to be a few seconds. So maybe it's much to do about nothing, and I just got to get used to it. You know, my guess is, you know, it, it, like with the in the marathon with those the cheater shoes. You know, I think it was maybe a year ago. It seemed to me like a whole slew of American men running two ten. And you, you know, when you first look at it, you're like, wow, this is like a nice step forward for American running. That's pretty awesome. And then you find out that they got the shoes, and you know that adds, you know, take three or four minutes off of their time. And then I'm like, all right, so whole. Blue men just ran 2.14. We really haven't made any progress. So I'm sure I'll become accustomed to it over time. But that's, I guess, what's what's in the news recently was uh, I was amazed when I saw the performance. And then when I I heard about it, I was like, oh, man, it's it's too bad because it takes something away from it for me. That might be totally different for a 25-year-old. I get that. All right, Chris. Let's let's talk about the mile. That's your love. You've got a European-born mother. Are you into Jacob Ingebrigtsen? You were into Alan Webb when he was a teenage phenom. Are you following Ingebrigtsen? Are you aware of what he did recently? Uh, yes, I, I am absolutely a fan of that kid. I mean, I just think it doesn't matter the sport, right? I mean, prodigies are a whole lot of fun to watch. And I think they bring like a naivete to the table or that allows them to not put any limits on what they can do. Um, and so he's in that category. Yes. I mean, from the time he, you know, ran a sub four as a 16 year old, he's one of the guys that I read your site for because I want to see what that kid's up to. And, uh, he's impressive as hell. But no, I am not aware of what he most recently did. European record in the 1500 in Monica ran 328. John will know the exact hundredth of a second. I'm not sure. 68. I mean, wow. forget about sub four at 16, right? If you're sub four at 16, you don't get a much better. You're not a world player, but this guy's a 345 miler now, 346, somewhere in there. And he's what, 19 years 19. old? 19. 20 years old? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's astonishing. It really is. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I look at this and I kind of, you know, scratch my head a little bit when, uh, I, and it's like with cycling as well, where, I mean, we had the, the EPO error a while a while ago, and all of a sudden overnight, everyone's running, you know, 1250, and then it slowed down again. And I guess the only thing that 
could potentially take away from any of these top level performances now is, you know, if I'm to believe that they're clean, uh, it's just hard. It's just hard to fathom that you could be clean and running that much faster than you know people that were doped to the gills a short while ago. Uh, but I don't say you know, and that's not to insinuate at all that he is. I really, I hope he's clean. I hate thinking about it because it really takes the joy out of it for me. And um, I mean, I imagine that that kid's been under more scrutiny than than anyone because he's been he's been so good for so long already. Um, so I think he's wonderful. He's one of the guys that I want to tune in to see. And uh, let's just, you know, I hope that all of these uh, performances I'm seeing are legitimate because it. I mean, look at Donovan Brazier, right? What he's doing, unbelievable. I mean, some of these some of these kids are phenomenal. I will tell you the overarching thing I noticed when I went to the re, I went to the the New Balance meet at the Reggie in Boston last year, and when you look at Brazier and uh, who's the other American guy, the, the Clay Murphy, Murphy, him, Ingebrigtsen, all these kids are really tall. I mean. Seems like that the world class guys now in the middle distances, you know, are like in the other sports. They've just gotten a lot bigger. I mean, I think these guys are like six one, six two, six three. Um, you know, it's they almost look like aliens. It's, it's crazy, uh, but it does seem like physiologically, if you compare top ten guys in the world now in the half mile or the mile, I would be shocked if you compared the the numbers from ten years ago if they weren't significantly taller than they were then. Of course, you said that being height challenged yourself. You focused on height immediately. And that's why I wear clogs at work. Yeah, I'm vertically challenged. I'm like the opposite of the Chevy Chase guy. It's got the afro to, you know, I'm I'm five foot nothing, and I have three, four inches with the clogs. <laughs> that that's Chris justifying his college mediocrity. Yes, our college roommate Scott Anderson was like six five, six six. It was a 1500 meter guy. But Chris, yes, you are better, much better looking than Scott. But we'll all admit that he's a freak looking, you know, character. But back to people being clean and dirty. I mean, you're most famous for the book Running with the Buffaloes, but you did write a book in Alan Webb, and he ran three forty six in the mile. You would, I assume, you think he was clean, correct? Yeah, and that's the thing, and that's why I, I don't, you know, I have, I, I want to believe that uh, that Ingebrigtsen is, and there's, he's, you know, his progression, like you say, is a natural progression. If he's running what he did as a 16 year old to now, I mean, there's nothing about that that raises any eyebrows. And uh, I think fundamentally, I just want, I want to believe that that he's clean. So I'm going to go with it and say, say that he is, and I'll be absolutely rooting for him. Um, you know, if we have an Olympic Games next year. Back to Webb. Like, do you have any doubt Webb was, like, he would have been doping in high school, I assume, but do you have, is there any doubt in your mind? No. I mean, Adam Goucher, Alan Webb, the two big protagonists of, of my books that I spent time, you know, I was as close to them as I could be to any world-class runner on a day-in, day-out basis. And, uh, yeah, for both of them, I would be floored if if it turned out that they were. I just don't think they were. And, and I think, you know, here's the thing. If I look at it, and I, and as much as you say with your tagline, I don't, is it still the tagline, like where your dreams become reality? Let's run. Like, I, I think that's true to a point. But I think Weldon, I mean, you, you know, as a 28-0-something 10K guy, 
I think there is a chasm, a talent chasm that exists between national class and world class. And having seen world class like Allen, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't 10 guys across the world that have his level of talent. And as much as you can properly train and to maximize your ability, the talent gap between those guys and the rest is just absurd. I mean, it's, there's no amount of training that can overcome that. And I, and I do, I do believe that in, in the realm of human possibility, um, that what Alan did is entirely achievable. And, uh, and I, and I don't, I don't think he had physiologically the, the best body for a business runner. He probably could have, you know, if you're built more like a Kenyan, just less body mass to, to run around the track. Uh, I gotta think that, yeah, the, the limits are even, you know, four or five seconds faster than whatever Alan could do. Well, great, Chris. Thanks for your time. Hey, one more thing. We need another plug for you. I'm starting a fall training. Give another shout out to how John Kellogg coached you to a half marathon PR. No, I think, you know, listen, intellectually, I was curious to see what he did because I, just, I never, I just knew the broad strokes from talking to you guys. But I think when you look at what Weldon was able to do from being a, you know, a, a decent, uh, but I'd say probably rather mediocre Division One college runner to being forced at the USA a couple of years later and proving his 10K by two minutes, I was really curious to see, you know, what he, what he did. Never mind you. you. I paced you to your first sub-five-minute mile when you were a senior in college, and then you went on to run, what, 222 in the marathon? I mean, that's totally remarkable. So, yeah, I wanted to see what he did that was, that was different, and I had a very, you know, a, a very positive experience with it. And, uh, you know, it was one of the, the few times in, when, when I was, you know, competing as a runner that I had a performance that absolutely surprised me on the upside that where I did something that I didn't think I could possibly do on that day. Um, so there's, you know, there's absolute merit to what he does. And, and I've been, I like study. I mean, I don't study it. That's way too uh, rigorous of a term, but I do like to kind of learn about the top coaches like Tin Man Schwartz is a guy that caught, has caught my fancy. And, uh, you know, he had something on Instagram that I follow him and some of his guys where he, he talked about practicing relaxation. And he said, the key to running fast is practicing relaxation. And when I read that, I said, that sounds to me just like Kellogg. Do you agree? 100%. Relaxation is the key to running fast. I think it all comes originally from Lidyard. That was the video Weldon recorded in our summer training program. Anyways, great talking to you, Chris. Go crush it. Go sell, go sell some medical devices that people don't need. Rack up those healthcare costs. <laughs> yeah, you know, give us your medical device sales app. now. I'm tired of having to go to a website to listen to you. I want a, I want a Letron app on my phone. Get cracking. All right, you got any life advice, Chris, for the working stiffs out there? You know, it's a little late to, 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 to listen to CNBC and start making some bets right now, but you know, there's still a trillion dollars on the sideline waiting to be deployed. So start putting some money to work, baby. Yeah. Oh, I forgot our new website, Stock Picks with Chris, will be coming out soon. That'll be the actual real money maker for Let's Run. It'll be like, well, you think Dave Portnoy is big with the Stock Picks. This will be huge. I forgot to put this on my, my post on your message board last night, but I think you guys know more about the sport and you guys can come up with a betting line better than anyone. 
I, th- I think absolutely there should be a way for me to go to your website and place bets before any major track event. Like that should be the place where I go. And whether it routes me somewhere else, I, I want to see that because that, you know, if I could gamble on running, it would make it much more entertaining for me. I'd be more apt to follow it closer if I could put the money down on it. Agreed. But also, once you can gamble on running, means you'll be able to gamble on, on your home on NBA and NFL, and you'll probably be gambling on those instead. But no, I don't Ooh. think so because I, I feel like this is where I might have an edge. Oh, good so point. I'd, good I'd point. rather I'd rather bet on something where I feel like I know a little bit more than the average person that might have an advantage. All right, we'll have your stock picks right. and your gambling picks. Good talking to you, man. I got a roll. Peace out. Bye. There he is, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Lear. And for those of you still listening, we're going to reward you with some bonus content. And this is the type of stuff subscribers are going to get access to. A little behind the scenes of Let's Run. Just We're going to let our guard down for certain things and kind of show you how the sausage is made. Here's a little rant from Rojo as he recorded today's podcast. In the men's 1500, we did have Timothy Chariot extending his win streak over Jakob Ingerbutsen. Yeah, this one was a 3.30 race. and uh, Wait, 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 wait. So we're not talking about it. You're going to, to Seiko. I, I want to add to it. I'm not allowed to add to it? My God. Guys, guys. Chill. Okay, fine. I'm just trying I'm, to figure I'm out what so, you're doing. Robert, a, you need to learn how to... I want to make you about this race. Robert, what is your issue? There's a lot going There's on There's nothing going on with me. This is not professional. It's not professional to say that I can't talk about it. I'm your brother, but the, the, these are your. So employees. what? Have you ever watched? You need to call. Have you down. ever watched? I'm not going to record the show. Have you watched Bill you, O'Reilly? You don't think that talented people get mad? <laughs> oh God! <There> go, <laughs> can, we, can we include this in the podcast? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm writing this down. Put that for subscribers only, then. <laughs> Robert's using Bill O'Reilly's legendary rant to justify his tyrannical actions. This is just (laughs) fantastic. You want more of this? Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe.